Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with conservationists, ecologists, wildlife filmmakers, or really anyone who dedicates their lives to helping nature. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects, and worldwide environmental issues. You can find out all about the reasoning behind the Coffee Connection over on my Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists. In today's episode, I'm featuring coffee from Deer Green. This is a delicious coffee that I picked up from a local bookshop and cafe in Falmouth, and as usual, I'll be talking more about them and who they are at the end of this episode. In this episode, I talk with Lucy Hodson, probably better known as Lucy Lapwing on social media. Lucy is a conservationist, environmental campaigner, educator, and self-proclaimed nature nerd. We talked about, among other things, the threats to UK wildlife, the importance of vilified species such as wasps and spiders, the role of social media in UK conservation efforts, and why being a nature nerd is in no way a bad thing. Hi Lucy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to come on and talk to me today. Um, we'll start it off by getting to know you a bit. Could you tell us about yourself and how you first kind of I guess got interested or where your love in nature and conservation first started? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Really nice to talk. Um, I am, who am I? I am um, a general nature nerd. Um, I'm a naturalist. I work in conservation in the UK um, and um, in my spare time, I do a lot of blogging online, mostly on Instagram, um, all about wildlife that you can find uh, in Britain. So, um, that takes all forms really. My main passion is to try and um, translate wildlife to people who perhaps haven't um, acknowledge that it's it's geeky and nerdy, but also just find the love in that and try and just help people understand that you haven't perhaps had the chance to um, see things before. You know, a lot of people aren't aware of the wildlife on their doorsteps. So. Um, yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell really. But did you, you ask if I kind of always, or how I got into it? Um, I have always had this kind of obsession with nature and wildlife. Um, I tend to call it the nature thing. So it's just this thing that people have um, where, they, where they're in love with wildlife and they find it fascinating and can find endless entertainment in watching it. And I, I really believe that every single kid is born with that, an innate love for, for other living things. Um, you see, if you ever watch a toddler, um, you know, give them something like a handful of worms or a frog or... Even, even with pets, like with animals, um, young children are just fascinated by other living things. And uh, sadly, along the way of this journey of being a modern human, it's often lost. And so people don't tend to carry that um, affinity for nature into their adulthood, which is quite sad. So I'm trying to change that a bit. Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely agree with that. I think uh, coming from a very nature-oriented family where we were always uh, taught as kids to kind of just be was sent out into the garden and just uh just explore really and and seeing my i've got younger siblings so seeing them um kind of going along the same path has been really really enjoyable um but yeah i definitely get what you're saying about the the sort of modern modern times um there's less than that less and less of that going on um less outdoor time and just sort of innate yeah connection i guess with nature um, something that's really uh, a big part of a lot of families' time in nature is kind of nature reserves. Um, I kind of want to get straight into the, the tough stuff, um, talk about some campaigns you're involved in. 
can you tell us about RSPB Minsmere? Why what is why it's so special and what threats are currently facing it? an example of kind of where we've got to um, in wildlife. So for a little bit of backstory, the UK um, is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world. Um, so we hear all these campaigns on the telly about uh, the plight of the rainforests, you know, polar bears in trouble, tigers in trouble, wildlife um, in all corners of the, the world is, is um, being really negatively impacted by humans in all sorts of ways, mostly through overconsumption. And it's very easy to, to lose the fact that we've already got rid of most of our wildlife in the UK. Um, you know, vast, vast areas of the UK now are very intensively managed for all sorts of reasons, for farming or they're urban or um, other things like, you know, forestry are particularly good to um, native British wildlife. And so a lot of it is squeezed into these tiny pockets in the form of nature reserves. And they can be in all sorts of ways. So whether it's managed by an organisation like the RSPB or wildlife trusts or whether it's a national nature reserve so it's a designation uh, our, our native species are often the most um, sensitive ones are often confined to these very small areas and Linsmere is a really good example of that so that's an area of land that the RSPB uh, the charity have managed for years and it's one of the most biodiverse patches if not in the UK then in England but in the UK um, it's got a huge amount of wildlife there I think we've got nearly 6,000 species um recorded on the site and yeah. although there has been a nuclear power station next door since the 60s um it it's there's a new uh, development proposed and at the moment the rspb um you know they've looked into carefully they've looked into the mitigation proposed by the developers and at the moment it's not going far enough to uh you know protect the precious wildlife that's there so um that's the kind of the concerns with it at the moment Mm, yeah, I think that's it's really important to be protecting those pockets. I've spoken before on the podcast about how nature depleted our country is and how um, I've been learning some really interesting things on my uni course about the kind of complete lack of, of general biodiversity in the UK in relation to, to many parts of the world. Um, and yeah. so definitely parts worth protecting. Kind of, sort of carrying on with the theme of getting people... Yeah out into nature um you recently shared some really big uh sort of interesting information on your instagram about access to nature for for children um now i'm a big advocate for getting kids out into nature i've spoken before on the podcast and my instagram and kind of about the lack of access generally uh especially in urban spaces this campaign kind of um that i think i read about a few weeks ago kind of covers the issue of how many kids don't have access to a garden and garden wildlife is I think one of the, the most kind of fundamental uh, beginning stages of, of forming a, a lifelong love with nature. Um, can you kind of tell us a bit about these these stats uh, when it comes to kids access to gardens and why it's so important to have green space uh, sort of from an early age? Yes, um, I mean, I think 2020 and all of its glory has kind of reiterated the importance of having that nearby um, quality green space for people to be able to escape into, even if they don't have a garden. Um, so the campaign I mentioned on my Instagram was, um, this particular example was led by a group called UK Youth for Nature, which is young people throughout the UK who are campaigning for um, for nature, for the natural environment. 
Um, but there's been very similar findings from a number of organisations as well, so including the RSPB, including Friends of the Earth, including uh, Green Greenpeace, I believe. Um, and it's just it's just to show the, the dire state of of access to green space that so many young people have nowadays. Um, and you know, it's something we often take for granted. So you know, the statistics say the average child in the UK now spends less time outside each day than your average prisoner, which is quite a shocking fact to look at. And well, yeah. um, if you look at like the biggest, the biggest urban area near me is Birmingham, and um, in like the wider Birmingham area, there was a study a couple of years ago that showed that one in ten kids hadn't set foot in a natural environment in the last year. Wow. So let alone like. Know, having a garden, they've not they've been in, in concrete and tarmac for at least twelve months, and you know it's it, it can sometimes sound airy fairy saying you know get out in nature it makes you feel good it sounds um, hippie which is something I've been called my entire life and I think it's a proud badge to wear but <laughs> um, but it's scientifically proven that we need natural spaces you know for our mental health for our physical health it's you know if you think of how much pollution we're exposed to it, it mitigates that and we are a species we forget this so much we are an animal we are a species that has evolved in the natural environment and it's always in the very it's only in the very very immediate recent history that we've completely detached ourselves from that and it's so easy to get lost in this world of screens indoors meetings um, consumption going to the shops buying things all of these things that are just not what a human is and we live so much of our time in in fight mode and flight mode, we're never actually just being mindful and stopping and when we do that which is linked to green space being outdoors it's just much better for us so it, i mean lockdown demonstrated it you know people who normally you know might not fret that much about having somewhere green nearby suddenly nowhere else to go and you suddenly realize wow i could really do with some good trees right now so <laughs> yeah yeah, it's definitely, I was definitely very appreciative of, um, I've always been very lucky to have a big garden, to have uh, a car, a family car that we could go on trips to the local woodlands and, and uh, nature reserves. But um, yeah, the, the just sheer kind of disparity in green space between different groups of people, especially in a place like, I was talking to my friends in London during lockdown, and um, you know, in a place like London, the the stats about kind of having um, one in five kids not having access to that garden—that's that's huge. And obviously, um, I think I remember mentioning you mentioning in your post that when you when you're talking about families, um, sort of BIPOC families, so uh, Black Indigenous people of colour, that drops down to two in five. Um, and that's just, yeah. that's, that's a huge number of children. If you think about the amount of children yeah. across the UK, that's absolutely um, astonishing. It is, it's huge. And this is, this is the thing because, you know, in, in, in 2020, we've seen a lot more discussion around, um, all of these issues and you get so many people, I mean, I'll, I'll go out there and say it, you get a lot of people who have attitudes to it, who will say things like, um, you know, well, there's nothing stopping black people going out to the countryside. So why is it working this into a political problem? And it's like, if you've, you know, if we know that black people and people of colour are disproportionately growing up in areas where they have less access to nature, why is it going to matter to that person? Why, you know, why, why will you care about something that you've not, you know, been educated in and you've not been given the chance to engage with? You know, a lot of a lot of the nature community and the conservation community are very white, very middle class, and that is because 
often you will have somebody in your life as a child who is that nature influence, who is somebody, perhaps a relative or a friend, who exposes you to it. And it has always been white middle class pursuit. And so no wonder it's not changing because organisations and individuals aren't proactively, you know, trying to help people into the sector. Um, mm. Yeah, this it's is... born from those childhood experiences. Yeah. So if you've not got a decent park, a decent place to go, it's not going to feel relevant to you to you know travel miles out to the countryside to see a bunch of white middle class faces staring at you and saying, "Oh well, you're imagining that there's no problem here." Yeah, one one hundred percent. I think this is something I've touched on quite a few times before with some some amazing guests who kind of made their way into the sector in quite difficult circumstances. Um, and I think it's it's such a, such an important thing to, you know, I, I say I've touched on it before because a, a couple of my listeners will probably be tired of me saying it but or, or talking about it, but we just need to keep on saying it until change happens because it is, um, you know, ridiculous how um, I think I, I bring it back to me because it's kind of a relatable example, but I'm I'm a white guy I'm 20 I'm going into this field of conservation filmmaking and photography and growing up my influences were people like David Attenborough Jane Goodall Gordon Buchanan they were white people um and white middle class people or upper class people and I just yeah until a couple of years ago I was looking at my book you know I think it was last year sometime I looked at my bookshelf and went there's one conservation book here written by a, a um I, I think he's a, a Korean um researcher and photographer um everything else every other nature book every other nature guide field guide coffee table photo book that I had on my shelf everything was uh completely white centric um and I think that yeah, yeah that's I mean, just the world is isn't it so yeah that's just the kind of this is the problem it's yeah um kind of uh, very very reflective of the wider conservation and and nature sort of communities really um so yeah thank you for raising that point very important um i think one one thing that obviously we've talked about just now a couple of times is kind of your social media use um how you use social media really effectively to communicate really important issues like this um quite a just just to kind of go into a bit of a light-hearted topic the something you talk about a lot is the importance of quite i'd say vilified animals things like spiders and wasps um obviously there's there's hundreds of species of these creatures in the uk so if we talked about each and every one we'd be here for days um i'd love to do that at some point have a conversation with someone for days on end about spiders and wasps because I i love them but um, could, could you kind of yes. give me a brief rundown of why uh, sort of certain animals are so useful and wh- why they're seen as kind of bad creatures by, I think, the vast majority of people? Yeah, this is something I find fascinating because um, it's such it's such a social, cultural thing. Um, it, you know, you find these negative attitudes just amplified and people repeat them and react to these things without really questioning it. Um and I, I believe, I truly believe that exposure to these things is what helps you get over the fear of it. I'm not by any means judging anybody for having a fear of things because it's such a natural reaction, we can't really control it. And I am scared of some things. I really dislike horseflies. I'm going to put it out there. Like, I have some kind of weird semi-logic reaction to them, but, you know, they're just 
in a thing and they've got beautiful eyes, I can still slightly appreciate them. But things like spiders and wasps and insert other species here, you know, we get all these things very heavily vilified by the press. The media has played a large role in this. Um, you can, you know, if you just type in spider UK and then into Google and go on the news, just have a laugh at some of the headlines. Like, I'm not exaggerating. The headlines are like, uh, giant sex crazed spiders invading UK homes this autumn, or Asian murder hornets, uh, German Asian murder hornets sending on the UK. <laughs> Why? How they can be German and Asian coming over at the same time? Um, other things like the seagull ate my dog. It's just like people are just taught to fear because it's, it, it sells those clicks, it sells those papers, it gets people, you know interested in it and it's so easy once you've got a bit of fear in something it's so easy for that to escalate um and these things are you know they're part of the environment around us and i think as well as the fact that there's fear mongering around them um we are as i've said before in such a dire state in terms of our biodiversity that we're encountering the less and less often so that when we do encounter them it's all that bit more scary um you know in the past the there would have been many, many more insects about. We never, um, invertebrate and insect numbers have crashed significantly in the past half a century or so. Um, so yeah, it's just, you know, and we leave these increasingly sterile lives as well. So if you think everything's cast out of your home, you're not going to encounter things the same. So, um, yeah, I'm just trying to turn it around and, and show people that these things, you know, often help us pollinate or they themselves, like if you look at spiders, will other species that things like mosquitoes and midges that drive us mad <laughs> um it's all part of the balance of it and there should be a, there should be always a huge diversity of insect and invertebrate life mm. should be a given yeah yeah i think uh looking at your like in little illustrations and infographics that you create it's uh i've learned so much this just this year actually just looking at your account about um why oh, how, how useful they are um because i, I knew sort of obviously that these creatures were useful in some way um, and that they were being vilified by the press. I've actually, just as you've been speaking, I typed Spiders UK and the first thing that came up was Metro spiders in Britain are more dangerous than we thought, study claims, um, which is not the, quite a comedic headline, but it is kind of reflective of the general um, things that I'm scrolling through here. Um, quite yeah. quite a lot of fear-mongering it's, about... It's really difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I think it. I think it is quite hard to. It's quite hard to persuade people as well. Like I've I've spoken to people at, yes. at uni and who aren't into nature or conservation, and they've kind of gone, um, you know, tried to kill a wasp, and I've been like, wait, wait, no. Um, I read something the other day on Lucy Lapwing, Lucy's Instagram <laughs> about why wasps are so important, and they they we you know then sit and have a conversation about the usefulness of wasps, and they're just completely incredulous and be like, what? wasps have a purpose they're not just yes. buzzing flying little annoying things that we need to kill on site um yeah. so it's yeah that's that's really it's interesting. hard because you know you think of wasps and stuff they are linked with pain um but uh, this is another interesting thing about humans is that we seem to have this attitude that we shouldn't be inconvenienced by nature ever um and you know some people are highly allergic to wasps fair enough mm. be very careful with yourself but the vast majority of people are not and you know what it really doesn't hurt that much i got a little bit too close to a wasp's nest this year i was very excited it looked like it had been disturbed by a badger so they were obviously pissed off and i got a bit too close they kicked off they came for me i got a wasp up my shorts spun me on the backs 
at least five or six times. It really hurt, but it wasn't the worst thing I've ever done. You know, I've ever stubbed your little toe on a on a stool or a table. Yeah. Ouch! That, and I can't kill anything out of anger because of that. That's my own fault. <laughs> like, you know, I can hurt myself more than a wasp can hurt myself just by being a clumsy idiot, and I don't go around trying to kill something afterwards just because you can kill it. Doesn't mean you should. It really doesn't hurt that much, and we need to get over ourselves. Like, you can handle a little bit of pain, unless of course you're allergic, but you can handle a little bit of pain. It's really not that bad. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, and I think it's kind of inadvertently these questions all kind of lead back to social media, but I think it's just on my mind at the minute because it is just kind of how 2020 has been run, really, <laughs> on, on technology, on Instagram, on yeah. Zoom calls. <laughs> um, but kind of you use Instagram and Twitter as platforms very effectively. Collectively, you kind of have, a, a, I think, over 31,000 followers what role do you think social media has to play in kind of British conservation and and a, the fight for greater biodiversity? That's really interesting. Um, I I have a love hate relationship with social media. Mm. Um, Twitter, I tend to call the argument machine because I think it's just where people just go to create arguments. I, you know, it can be often very unuseful. Yeah, um, couldn't agree with you more. I think. I think. <laughs> I mean, I'm not on Facebook for that exact reason. I was just sick of seeing vague racist relatives argue about stuff. Um, so I quit that. But, yeah. So I think it is useful. I think it's definitely not the be-all and end-all. It's it's a useful tool in a suite of tools to communicate about things. Now, you know, I'm just a normal person, and I take into using the only platform that I kind of got the access to use at the moment. You know, I'm not a professional photographer or videographer. I don't. I don't have any means of amplifying my voice other than through social media at the moment, so that's kind of actually what I do. Um, but in terms of influencing conservation, the best way to influence conservation is on the ground. Um, and, you know, that can play its, its way out in all sorts of ways, whether it's through changes in agricultural policy or whether it's through private rewilding projects or anything like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just one little piece of the jigsaw puzzle that's very cliche thing to say um but you know there's a lot of there's a huge 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 diverse audience on social media so from my perspective there's always average joe british public people on there who know nothing about wildlife that i can hopefully just give them a little drop of wild that might start them on a journey towards it towards enjoying it so that's kind of how i look at it yeah i, th- I think that i'd agree with you definitely that we a, a lot of people have love hate relationships with it um i think sometimes i struggle a bit i i'm lucky because i'm not quite stuck in my own little echo chamber but i do struggle with the idea of an echo chamber quite a lot it's kind of you know i'm kind of preaching to the converted whenever i talk about ecological or, or wildlife issues um i find that most of the accounts that i follow most of the accounts that follow me are fellow um like are listed in their bio as conservationists or naturalists or environmentalists or wildlife photographers um so they kind of yeah i kind of hit a wall at at times so it it can um as you said be a very useful tool uh but i definitely would agree that it's not the be all and end all um so yeah thanks for your input as a as a social media user and as a general human i think really it's um it's just uh about the echo chamber thing people say that a lot and i feel it too it is an echo chamber 
role just to, you know, preach to the converted, but the number of the converted is categorically increasing, and mm. social media does help with that. So when I started out, I started on Instagram about five years ago, properly doing wildlife stuff. There was no find any wildlife accounts on Instagram, let alone British ones. And the number of young people, you know, people of your age and people going to uni and teenagers on there, wildlife is increasing. When, when I went to uni, which we won't, we won't discuss when that was, mm. you know, there was 15 of us on my wildlife conservation course, and two years later there were 95. So the number of people interested in it is increasing. So even though it's an echo chamber, it's a growing one, <laughs> is what I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's, it's actually amazing to be, I'm down in Falmouth, um, which is an amazing university, amazing course that I'm doing, but it's kind of, um, it's amazing to see the sheer number of people just, as you said, interested in it. You know, 15 to me sounds like a master's size course, not, um, you know, it's quite a, such a small number when you think about it, but um, that's just because I'm used to having, what, I think there's 110 people on my course um and yeah about about around 100 on most of the biosciences courses um so they're definitely yeah definitely increasing um earlier you you said about how the uk is one of the most nature depleted countries on earth um and i think you're someone who's definitely quite heavily embedded in the uk conservation and wildlife scene um it must be quite kind of hard to deal with the almost overwhelmingly bad news that seems to bombard us nature lovers on a far too regular basis um if you don't mind answering this question have you ever suffered from eco-anxiety and kind of if you have what's a way you you found to sort of keep it in check a bit oh massively absolutely like i can be asking my friends absolutely horrendous i go into like funks so before eco-anxiety became a term i used to call it the ego dread because mm. <laughs> there wasn't a word for it Okay. And I just say to my friends, oh, I'll really bad eco dread. Because I'd be reading the news and it got to the point that, like, I was deleting, this was about four years ago, I was deleting news apps off my phone for, like, periods because I was like, I just kept immediately scrolling to the environment section. And, it, yeah, it's, and I still, it's very cyclical. So, you know, sometimes I feel all right. And then other times you feel horrendous. Um, and the worst thing about it is that nature, for me and for, you know, other people that have the nature thing, it's a remedy but by delving into the remedy, you're reminded of how bad the problem is. So then you go back to your remedy, and then you, it's like a vicious circle. You're like, feeling crap about the environment and nature. I'm going to go out bird watching. And then you find, like, you know, you start thinking about looking at lapwings, for example. You're like, oh, God, decline by, and so what, 60-something percent. Well, this is great. <laughs> so it's, it's really hard because it's kind of, it's the best and worst hobby in the world. I do try and stay hopeful. Like I said, there's a lot more people interested in it. Um, I think climate change, I think, you know, kind of out of the bag with that. I think I don't have faith that the human race could necessarily change that quickly, but I think I think the human, the human race has, has the ability to adapt. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, it's, just, it's really difficult because, you know, you look at things on a UK basis, so it, at the moment, I'm feeling quite a lot of hope. Recently, I've done a little bit of reaching out to people who work in the agricultural sector in the UK, and I'm just just at the start of having a few chats with people about the future of farming going forward in the UK. And there's some really promising signs and changes in kind of policy and the way of doing things that will hopefully give better results for nature. Excellent, great. 
that then doesn't take away from the fact that we're in a global biodiversity crisis. <laughs> and just because we fix things on our tiny island, maybe doesn't mean that the rest of the world's okay. So I think, you, you know, you want human being, you've got to take the joy from everything that you can, try and immerse yourself in wildlife as much as you can whilst you're here, and just do everything that you can to try and make a difference. You know, you might not be able to change the world as an individual, but you can get to the end of your life and think, oh, well, I buried my head in the sand and didn't try, or you can get to the end of your life and, you know, the world's burning around us, but at least we gave it our all. But that's a very depressing way to look at it, but that's how I feel. No, yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think it's... um. It's a tricky topic because I think so many, obviously, as you said, there's only recently been a term coined for it. There's only recently been kind of research done into it. Um, and it is, it is really hard, you know, just not just on the the, the sort of UK local level, um, but just internationally as well, because I'm working on other campaigns with kind of, you know, half my brain is split between wildlife and practical conservation and the other half is split between kind of campaigns that I've been working on completely remotely where I will have probably never actually meet the people or never actually see what they're facing but just kind of seeing and talking to them over zoom and seeing kind of for example I'm talking to a, a um, climate activist in the Philippines they've just been hit really hard by uh, four typhoons in a, in under a month um which is just hor- horrific like the whole yeah just just seeing that from afar and the feeling of not really being able to do anything about it um is is really hard but i think those what, you, what you're saying about staying hopeful and focusing on the positives because it is really great because there are positives as much as we want to focus on all the negatives because there's tends to be quite a few more of them um positives do exist you know there's a lots of exciting projects going on across the uk and across the world that could really make a difference if some if some important people get give it their backing um so yeah i think hope hope is a really important thing to to hold on to um i think this leads nicely into some more a, a quick last question about young people again a lot more people uh young people are getting off their phones as we just said and back into nature um there's a lot of amazing groups kind of giving us all hope by working with kids to get them out and about in parks and woodlands um my little brother is six he's already showing signs of becoming a fully fledged nature nerd um he absolutely loves nature spends almost every waking moment he can in our garden rain or shine um so he is the the perfect example to use right here but if you could give one piece of advice to kind of budding conservationist or a, a budding nature nerd um what would it be wow okay <laughs> that's kind of um... a, it's hard to narrow it down isn't it? <laughs> but, uh... oh it's difficult isn't it i suppose okay a two-pronged thing mm. is immerse yourself in the nature learn about the nature absorb the nature you know just be it feel it see it touch it lick it whatever you need to do immerse yourself in that natural world and experience of it as possible and then share that love so you know pass on that passion and enthusiasm and uh just love for it they're missing people need to see how magic the world is because one thing i just wish i could do is just take that feeling in the back of my school when i'm like engaged with nature and just implant it in somebody's head you know if i'm watching a robin singing or something and just make them look and just see it and feel it because if everybody got it, then if everybody had this nature thing, then, you know, people would care. 
So I think, yeah, spend time in it for yourself, very selfishly. <laughs> um, learn about it and spread the love. And I think, not in like a blame, I think, I hope and think that young people could and should grow up to live a life a lot slower or simple. Mm. You know, with a lot less consumption. And, and less consumption is not a bad thing. It's not, you're not doing without, you're just doing things differently. You know, we've we've come to take for granted the amount of stuff that we can get at a moment's notice and the cheapest food on the planet. And, you know, you shouldn't, you know, lived a lot slower and didn't need to buy new outfits every month. We spent more on income on food and just slowed down, walked more places on foot, lived a bit more locally, everything mm. was a bit more considered. I think the world would be a lot better place. Sorry, that was quite a long answer. No, no, it was great. Um, it was quite hard to narrow that down. That was quite a difficult question, I think. I kind of wanted to just put it in there um, because you are kind of, especially among the community that I've spoken to, and um, uh, you are kind of regarded as the, the kind of ultimate nature nerd um which i think is a really great thing um it's not nerd is not a bad term oh, at all you. badge of honor um but um but yeah so it's great to get your opinion on that i mean that the last thing to say really is um before we finish is it right if we just do a little quick fire round so these are kind of four questions that i ask all my guests and they stay the same throughout Ooh, yeah. and uh, just answer them kind of as quickly yeah, as possible really so first off what's your favorite animal that's already too hard. Um, I know, I know, I really sorry. Like toads. I really like toads. Yeah. Toads are just brilliant. Toads are excellent. Where is a place you like to go and connect with nature? Somewhere you feel really at home out- outside? Uh, my favourite reserve is RSPB Coombs Valley in Staffordshire. It's an ancient woodland. It's brilliant and gorgeous and peaceful and quiet. Do you have a conservation hero? Probably my best friend, Nadia Sheikh. She is, she works in conservation. It's all about people power and people empowerment um, and working with normal people on the ground to uh, inspire them to engage people with nature. So not necessarily well known, but she's my conservation hero. Last off, how do you take your coffee? Black. Cool. The uh, the reason I asked that question <laughs> is um, the podcast, as I mentioned, is called Coffee with Conservationists. So at the end of each episode, I'll highlight like, a different independent, sustainable, ethical coffee company. Um, and try and get hold of nice. their coffee if they can. If I can, uh, usually, if hope it's a bonus if it links to conservation, doesn't always, but usually, you know, it's a company that uses direct trade or um, is B Corp yeah. certified or something amazing. Uh, I think coffee is something that kind of gives cool. this podcast a bit of a niche and uh, unifies a lot of people as well in our in our love of coffee um so i think kind of we can we can kind of wrap it up there but before we finish i wanted to ask where can people find you what are your main handles to to kind of um yeah see see the work you do uh it'd just be lucy underscore lapwing on um instagram and twitter and then hopefully in the new maybe youtube when i get organized but yeah instagram and twitter for now lucy underscore lapwing Awesome. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. I'm sorry about the technical messes at the beginning, but I'm glad we got it sorted. And hopefully, hopefully nothing will go wrong with this uh, recording um, and it will be a smooth and nice interview. Um, We've talked about some really important things and yeah, I'm just really grateful that you took the time to to say what you had to say. No worries. Anytime. It's lovely to speak. Um, Yeah, stay in touch. 
Thanks again to Lucy for taking the time to speak to me today. All the links to her social media will be in the description down below. So I said that today we're featuring coffee from Deer Green. Deer Green Coffee Roasters are a Glasgow-based coffee company that sources coffee through direct trade. Recently I've been looking for this on coffee companies' websites and I prefer it to fair trade certification. Direct trade allows companies to pay a premium much higher than the commodity rate and allows absolute transparency and integrity in all that the company does along the supply chain. As well as this, Deer Green puts accountability, sustainability and ethics at the heart of their business practice. And by donating to World Coffee Research annually, as well as supporting a range of other charities, groups and causes, they are able to fund programmes to identify barriers to quality for producers such as the effects of climate change, disease, pests and low yields. All the details of the particular coffee I'm drinking, which came from Brazil, will be over on our Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists and down in the description down below. So if you're a regular listener or a follower of mine on Instagram, you'll know I started a Kofi page. This is a place for me to share blog posts, videos, co coffee company profiles and more. It's also a way for you to support me if you feel like you've learnt kind of anything of value from my podcast. And I really hope you have. Um, because I've been lucky enough to speak to some absolutely incredible people. I'm raising money through this page into 2021 and I aim to use that money to support small coffee growing communities and small coffee companies. If you'd like to help me help these people in groups, please consider supporting me. You can find me through the link in my Instagram bio and the description. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts and a few more places. I recently got an email saying it's been made available on Apple Podcasts, which I actually thought had happened quite a few months ago. So apologies to any Apple Podcast users who have tried and failed to find my podcast on there over the past months. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman-Jones, and this is the Coffee with Conservationists podcast. <laughs>